Welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And for today's inaugural episode, we are going to be talking about Taiwan, Macau, Hong Kong, and mainland China. What exactly is China, and how do these four entities all play together? If you are confused and thought there was just China, that's sort of the point. The Chinese mainland under the Communist Party of China has an official one-China policy pertaining to Taiwan and a one-country, two-systems policy for Macau and Hong Kong. All four of these entities are ethnically Han Chinese and at a very surface level look similar. However, it is their history, politics, and culture that divides them. So without any further ado, we're going to jump right into the first topic for today, mainland China. So the main thing to understand about Chinese culture and Chinese civilization more generally is that it is really, really old. Chinese civilization predates and outlives Rome by a thousand years. And much like Rome for much of that time, they served as this cultural, economic, and technological epicenter of East Asia. However, this comes to a close in the 1800s in what's known as the Century of Humiliation. It's during this time that China loses a series of conflicts with European powers as well as the United States, Russia, and Japan. And it's during this time that they cede a bunch of territory, most notably Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan, and also sign what's known as the Unequal Treaties, giving up numerous trade concessions, etc., which really frustrates the Chinese people at home. Right. And it, that culminates in a bunch of revolts at home, uh, which severely weaken the Qing Empire, which is the last imperial dynasty to rule China. By the year 1912, the Qing are finished, and they have been replaced by a nationalist government known as the Kuomintang, who are going to be a major player uh, going forward in Chinese history. However, at this time, the Kuomintang are relatively weak and maintain a a tentative grip on the country as a whole. In this power vacuum, a bunch of factions rise up with their own armies, sets of policies, and so on and so forth behind them. One of these factions, of course, are the Chinese communists. And the communists eventually gain enough power to threaten the Kuomintang, which leads to them coming to blows in what's known as the Chinese Civil War. So the communists in this fight initially get the worst end of the fighting. Uh, Mao is able to hold on, partly due due to the sheer force of his character. He's a very charismatic guy. He draws a lot of recruits to his cause. Uh, The fighting between the nationalists and the communists goes on hold, though, when Japan invades northern China. So this is in the early 1930s. This is pre-World War II. Um, Japan wrests the control of Korea and Manchuria away from China. Ultimately, they burn and pillage their way almost all the way down the East Coast, taking a lot of major cities. And the nationalist government is forced to come to the communists for military help. Now, eventually, Japan loses World War II. Importantly... In the course of their defeat, Mao Zedong really makes a name for himself. He becomes the first Chinese leader in over 100 years to successfully stand up against foreign aggression. And that becomes really the center of his reputation for decades to come until his death. So it's important to reiterate this last point. Not only were the communists able to take power because of the glory of the new ideas of communism, but also because Mao was really seen as a national hero for his victory over the imperialist powers, the first one in about a century. Again, it's this century of humiliation where China suffers a string of defeats. It's this string of defeats that is ended by Mao Zedong with the repulsion of Japan from China. 
Immediately afterwards, though, Mao turns his attention from the Japanese to the Kuomintang nationalists, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The Civil War resumes immediately full swing as soon as the Japanese are kicked out of the mainland. Um, and this time it's the nationalists who lose because, you know, the rejuvenated Mao has so much support they can barely stand up to him. And the nationalists, again, the Kuomintang, they are forced to retreat across the Straits of Taiwan to the island of Taiwan. Yeah, and just as a quick aside, that's really where the modern history of Taiwan begins, and we're going to be covering that in a little bit, but just keep that in mind for the next section. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is a real watershed moment for the history of all the entities that we're talking about, because you know, at this point, Macau and Hong Kong and Taiwan are all officially separate from China, and this is going to be the period where a whole lot of change begins, uh, starting with the... Great Leap Forward, which is a industrial, which is an industrialization campaign uh, spearheaded by Mao Zedong. They reorganized agriculture in the country to be based around communal farms, which end up not being particularly productive. They also shift a lot of production emphasis in general over to machinery and industry. Uh, this results in a massive food shortage, a famine which goes on for several years and kills between 20 and 45 million people. Yeah, it's really at the tail end of this failure of the Great Leap Forward that the Cultural Revolution is going to happen next. And the impetus for this is that Mao is really weakened politically because of the failure of the Great Leap Forward. There are rival factions within the Communist Party who see his failure as an opportunity to step up. So in one respect, Mao institutes the Cultural Revolution as a way to shore up his political support. What the Cultural Revolution was, was a sweeping away of the old Chinese way of life in order to usher in the new communist utopia for its citizens. Particularly, the Cultural Revolution focused on the four olds, which was old culture, old customs, old habits, and old ideas. It was an attempt to totally rewrite Chinese intellectual thought kind of from the ground up. Like, as part of the cultural purges during the revolution, large number of teachers, professionals, intellectuals were rounded up, humiliated, beaten, sometimes killed. Like, another great example is the Communist Chinese Party instituted what's known as simplified Chinese characters, which was supposed to take over the traditional characters used called traditional Chinese. Um, ostensibly, it was meant to simplify the language, but the real political impetus behind the idea was to make it so that old Chinese texts were illegible because all the new generation would be raised on a different style of reading than previous. This purge of the old, which starts in the schools with intellectuals and then you know, ferries its way up the chain to artists and political opponents broadly. Um, this goes on for nearly a decade until Mao dies. Yeah, and just want to bring up like one more anecdote about the Cultural Revolution, just because it was so not only intellectually but physically destructive. Like one of the cornerstones of the manner in which the revolution was conducted would be that people would bring out their old idols, you know, like hundred-year-old sculptures of Buddha, and literally destroy them in the streets. Sometimes melt them down for scrap metal or for bullets. So not only were intellectual traditions purged, but physical artifacts were as well. Um, so the Cultural Revolution ultimately comes to a close uh, by the time of Mao's death in the 1970s, and really by the 1980s into the 1990s, China institutes a series of economic liberalizations under Deng Xiaoping, which ultimately culminates in uh, China being accepted into the World Trade Organization in 2001. Right, and people born before the end of Mao, they grew up in a fundamentally different China and today still have a fundamentally different mindset than those who were born during this economic explosion, which precipitated during the 80s and 90s. 
Yeah, like how big of a cultural divide would you say that is? Oh, I mean, we talk a lot in the United States about the generation gap between boomers and millennials. The the Chinese have something more akin to a cultural grand canyon between these two people, uh, these two groups of people, excuse me. The older generation, as we just covered, I mean, they grew up with the worst recorded famine, I believe, certainly the worst in the 20th century, the worst recorded famine we pretty much know of. Right, millions and millions of people. There, there is, there were more people killed as a result of these policies in China than there were in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union in its in its entirety. So, like, I cannot overstate the significance of that. And then you take this younger generation, which grows up amid the largest economic, the, the most rapid and comprehensive economic explosion in the 20th century as well. So you go from the biggest famine to the biggest period of economic growth. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. Just just as a little anecdote, uh, the the precise dates escape me at the moment, but it, it's something like in the same period of time that Germany's economy grew by 1.8 times and the United States economy grew two and a half times, the Chinese economy grew 27 times over. Yeah, so... Really, it's hard to overstate the size of the economic boom that China's had. But, you know, you probably know that anecdotally yourself. You know, you have a bunch of goods uh, labeled manufactured in China, all that sort of stuff. So that was re- you can really thank uh, the liberalization under Deng Xiaoping for that. Right. And, inc- and increasingly, those aren't even just basic manufactured goods, right? It's not just kids' toys and furniture and what have you. I mean, they're, they're producing computer chips. They control a huge amount of the world's rare earth metals. Um they're getting into tech. They're producing AI. It's 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 becoming increasingly sophisticated, and we're, we're getting these people who grew up in literal villages now living. You know, they've watched their surroundings turn into cities of three to five million people, which in China today is still considered something of a small city. Yeah. So that's um, China today. Definitely got to move on. Do you, do we have anything else to add before we head over to Taiwan? I think it's time to move on to Taiwan. Yeah, so in many ways, Taiwan stands as a total contrast to the mainland based on its history and culture. Well, the mainland has been ruled under a one-party communist state for most of its, for all of its modern existence. Taiwan has eventually blo- blossomed from somewhat of a you know military dictatorship under martial law into an open, modern, liberal, democratic state today. It ranks very highly on a lot of freedom indexes, both economic and political. Uh, it's the only country in Asia that not only recognizes but performs same-sex marriage. And in many regards, it's just like a terrifically open place and you know has a lot of uh, foreign trade and foreign visitors coming in. Right. And so we emphasize these differences because when you look at Taiwan, just at the surface level, it looks very Chinese still. It's primarily populated by people whose ancestors fled the mainland during the Chinese Civil War or right after the Chinese Civil War. Um, They speak Mandarin. There's tons of Chinese temples. Yeah. um, You know, and that's that's a really good point when she brought up it's in many regards, Taiwan is more Chinese than mainland China because we just mentioned the destruction from the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. An important element to understand about Taiwan is that it never was and never has been communist, and thus those the destruction of those programs was totally passed by by the island. Right. Those things really define modern China, and they're totally absent on the island of Taiwan. Yeah, so like just you know a couple of, like other small anecdotes like they still write with traditional chinese over in the island of taiwan even though like a lot of these shrines will be modern you'll see so much more instances of religion and shrines and culture and that sort of stuff than in the mainland because again all of that cultural destruction totally passed taiwan by 
Yeah, actually one of the chief ways that people on Taiwan have been able to single out mainland Chinese trolls or political influencers who are pretending to be Taiwanese is when these influencers uh, incorrectly translate from simplified Chinese into the traditional script, again, attempting to look like Taiwanese. Now, how exactly did we get here? The, the history of the modern Taiwanese state, of course, it doesn't stretch back nearly as far as China. It, it does start with the Kuomintang retreating across the water onto the island. Um, they remained something of a martial dictatorship for a good period of time, but ultimately they end up liberalizing, right? Yeah, so... After the Kuomintang retreat across the Strait of Taiwan to the island in 1949, it's definitely ruled as a military dictatorship for most of its first uh, several years, honestly. However, really in the 1970s and really into the 1980s and 90s, the island undergoes serious economic and political liberalization, which ultimately culminates in the first non-Kuomintang party member elected to presidency in 2000 uh, under the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. And a note, a note that I want to make real quick is that the this is the same Kuomintang that fled the mainland originally. However, today they are seen as being the more pro-unification or really pro-integration, pro-Beijing type political party on the island today that exists in opposition to to the pro-independence DPP. That's a great point. Like the biggest divide today in Taiwan is generational but also ideological it just they just track on the same lines uh the younger you are today in taiwan the more likely you are to consider yourself taiwanese as opposed to chinese and this is not only is it a question of national identity for the people on the island of taiwan but it's a serious political question in beijing because as we mentioned at the top of the show mainland china has a one china policy pertaining to taiwan and sees the island of taiwan as essentially a, a renegade province to be assimilated back into the fold so anyone on the island of Taiwan, voicing their opinion that they're not Chinese, but Taiwanese is seen as a direct threat to Beijing. Uh, The Kuomintang has recently lost several landslide elections against the DPP. So we, we, we can definitely see that younger people don't really have the same desire as maybe their parents or grandparents to reunify with China in any way. Yeah, so we we glossed over one point, but I want to make sure we touch on it before we move on, which is that despite being in pretty much every way its own country. For instance, it has its own military, its own passport, its own currency, its own foreign policy, all these sorts of things. As recognized by the United Nation, Taiwan, well, it isn't really. Um, you know, in 2020, only 14 of the 193 member nations of the United Nations consider Taiwan its own independent entity, and the rest, including notably the United States, has an official policy recognizing the People's Republic of China, the mainland, as the rightful inheritor of the title of China. Yeah, and pretty much anywhere that China invests economically, they, you know, those countries choose to recognize the PRC, that is the People's Republic, the Communist Party, uh, instead of Taiwan. Um, and this is this has been an ongoing tactic of the Communist Party, but we we'll, we might expand on that a little bit later. I think now would be a good time to move on to Hong Kong. Now, of course, Hong Kong spent a lot of its time as a British colony. Uh, Sam, why don't you walk us through what what was Hong Kong, what is it today, and how did all that time spent under British rule affect them? 
Yeah, so you definitely mentioned it. The most important thing to understand about Hong Kong is that it was a British colony. It is, even today, still very British. They observe afternoon tea. Rugby is a hugely popular sport. They're a global financial center like London. Uh, you know, they have a great they have a great metro system, and they uh, you know practice British common law as opposed to uh, the legal system practiced on the mainland. Doesn't the voice on the metro speak with an English accent? Yeah, when you get on the uh, subway line, it says, please mind the gap, which is very British if you've been to London, yeah. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, so Hong Kong really developed its own like very strong independent identity. Like If you think of Bruce Lee films, those are not Chinese films. Those originated in Hong Kong. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of conflation uh, between what is mainland Chinese and what is Hong Kong culture. I mean, we, I, I, shoot, I remember the cartoon growing up, Hong Kong Fui, and it was just a bunch of, you know, Chinese gongs and strings for the music in the background. But, you know, this is clearly a distinct political entity that uh, today is highly westernized and liberalized, or at least, well, maybe not today today, but as of maybe a year ago they were. Yeah, was. We'll, 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 touch, we'll touch on that later, spoiler alert. Really just want to reiterate one more time, Hong Kong is best seen as a perfect fusion between British and very traditional Chinese heritage uh, because of its time of, as a British colony, but also the fact that it's eth- ethnically Han Chinese and there was a tremendous refugee influx from the mainland during the Cultural Revolution and Great Leap Forward. Notably, they also, the, the native dialect there is also Cantonese and not Mandarin, which is what's sort of the standard across the rest of China. So we've talked a lot about how modern Hong Kong culture differs from that of the mainland. Uh, how exactly did they, how exactly did these changes come about? What's the, what's the history behind it? Yeah, so Hong Kong's history is totally shaped by it being a British colony. Uh, various parts of the territory were ceded by the Qing dynasty to the British over the course of the 1800s, mostly as a result of the Opium Wars, where the British were caught selling dope in mainland China. It's really, it's really funny. You should, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to cover that in today's podcast, but definitely uh, look up Opium Wars. It's a pretty crazy event in history. Um, but anyway, so <clears throat> the, the territory of Hong Kong, as it was ceded by the Qing, there really wasn't much there prior to the British administration. It was some rocks, fishing villages, uh, not very much. However, the British, being like they are, managed to really transform the island from basically nothing into this global shipping center. Like Due to its location within Asia as a gateway both to mainland China and then the rest of Southeast Asia, it became tremendously uh, profitable as a shipping port and eventually as a global financial center. Now, it was temporarily lost to the Japanese during World War II, but really um, most of Hong Kong's 150-year history from the 1800s to uh, really the turn of the millennia, it was under British colony and just experienced tremendous growth over that time. Right, and they, they had an influx, I believe, of some Chinese immigrants, so it's, it's not like they were totally British. I mean, most, most of the island is still Han Chinese, of course, correct? Yeah, but being British is not, uh, in this case, an ethnic thing, but really a cultural thing. As I mentioned at the top, it's like the, the cultural influence of the British being the colonizers of the island is really hard to overstate, like if you actually go there or anything. Yeah, I mean, they were basically considered part of the greater Commonwealth for quite some time. I believe they even participated in the Commonwealth Games um, alongside, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and the like. All this modernization, all these ties to England, um, and sort of like the Western way of doing things led to them really opening and liberalizing their economy. I believe like Milton Friedman even filmed a massive part of his documentary, Free to Choose, in and about Hong Kong, just to give you an idea. Um, what, what, what kind of numbers are involved? Like c- compared to the rest of China, 
what was Hong Kong doing and how much? That's a great question. Uh, at Really, in the 1990s, Hong Kong, despite being less than 1% of China's population, capped out at over 27% of its GDP, which is uh, just like a crazy ratio. Um, and another really good one to illustrate Hong Kong's growth is that at a similar time, the GDP per capita in Hong Kong was actually higher than that in Britain. So economically, they were surpassing their colonizers. Um, this kind of all comes to a head in 1979, where as part of the territorial concessions of the Qing, Britain had agreed to return parts of the territory of Hong Kong in the year 1997. Um, however, due to some logistical concerns, it was ultimately agreed that the entire territory of Hong Kong would be returned to the mainland communist government. However, the British were able to extract a confession uh, known as the Basic Law, which is essentially the territory's constitution that, among other rights granted to the citizens of Hong Kong, would be, quote, Hong Kong shall enjoy a high degree of autonomy under the pe central people's government. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In short, the Chinese government agreed to allow Hong Kong to continue doing things their way politically uh, for 50 years after the handoff from the British. Yeah, and you know, and to its credit, it was it held up that end of the bargain for at least some of those amount of years. Definitely, some of them. Um, you know, as as we mentioned not too long ago, Hong Kong. Hong Kong's relative economic importance to mainland China was just enormous. But as Mainland China continued to liberalize economically and experience rapid economic growth. Hong Kong shrunk from a massive 27% of China's GDP to less than 3%. And it's really at that point in time that the unpalatability of Hong Kong's system of government that's very visible to mainland Chinese that can travel right across the border and visit becomes much more of a concern than the loss of economic prosperity. Right. You can imagine the type of concern that that would create for Beijing when they have this, you know, economically open, politically liberal and, you know, open to the rest of the world. This this alternative way of doing things for the Chinese people right on their doorstep, looking all successful as they did, you know, that understandably poses a threat to the image that the Chinese Communist Party likes to project of itself as being, you know, this source of stability and wealth for all the Chinese people. Yeah, and you know, we'll touch on this at the conclusion of the show, but suffice it to say that things are not continuing on for Hong Kong as they have even just a couple years ago. Right. So with that out of the way, let's literally hop right across the water to Macau. Very similar to Hong Kong, uh Macau is this little, you know, sort of island city directly off the mainland that for much of its history was administered as a European colony, only they were administered by the Portuguese. Um, of course, Macau went a very different path than Hong Kong. We don't see a lot of the same political dissent in Macau that we do in Hong Kong. Um, so what are the main things that we need to understand about Macau as it stands today? Well, the main thing to understand about Macau today is gambling. Gambling is Macau, and Macau is gambling. To call Macau the Las Vegas of the East would be to do Macau a tremendous disservice because by revenue, it does six and a half times that of Vegas. Um, and you know, approximately 80% of the island's GDP is either directly or indirectly tied up with gambling. So the biggest and most important thing to understand about Macau is how much gambling shapes it in the modern context. I believe five out of the 10 largest casinos in the world are all located in Macau. If you look at their skyline, anything that sticks out, you can bet that's a casino. Yeah, so 
how did it get like this? And Mike alluded at the top, it hasn't really seen any of the political difficulties that Hong Kong has. So like, how did it end up having this very different political context than what should be its brother right across the, the sea? Um, and to understand that, you really have to understand Macau's history. Like Mike said at the top, Macau was a Portuguese colony for much of its history. However, it definitely grew up in the shadow of Hong Kong. It was, for most of its history, an economic backwater. Well, Hong Kong experienced tremendous growth in trade and global financial services and shipping. Macau never really came into its own. It had some middling textiles and fishing industries, but nothing to really capture attention on the global stage. So as a result of its kind of middling status on the global economic stage, Macau ultimately ended up turning to some unsavory industries, uh, for instance, opium trade, prostitution, gambling, the latter of which was eventually legalized by the Mechanese government. And this, and this was still while they were underneath Portuguese control, I believe, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this was while they were still under the Portuguese control. Um, the handoff back to Chinese administration would occur in 1999, excuse me, Hong Kong was in 97. And it's really only after that point that Macau's economy ends up taking off. Uh, in 2004, the Chinese government allows visa-free travel from the mainland to Macau. And just like that, Macau became the easiest place on the planet to gamble for approximately 20% of the world's population, 1.4 billion Chinese. That's right. And that's really the key difference between Macau and Hong Kong to internalize here. It's that Hong Kong grew into its own identity, owing in part to its economic explosion, and which happened entirely underneath British administration. Macau did not come into its own economically until well after it had already been handed back to the Chinese government. Yeah. So Macau's economic fortunes are directly tied up with that of mainland China, whereas Hong Kong was inherently decoupled from the mainland for much of its history. And that sort of Un economic reality underlies much of the political difference between Macau and Hong Kong today. And so that is why we see, despite the fact that in Macau, you know, they fly their own flag, they have a border crossing, they have a lot of their own currency, they do see themselves as being Chinese. It's predominantly Han Chinese. They don't have a they don't have this political opposition movement. Uh, they're not pushing for any form of independence. They are in many ways, aside from the, you know, dazzling economy that they have, they're not very different, culturally speaking, from uh, other cities on the Chinese mainland. So with that out of the way, let's turn our attention to where we see each of these four entities going in the near future briefly. All right. So let's kick it off with Macau since we just touched on it. And in some ways, it's the least complicated of uh, the four that we're going to talk about here. Macau uh, we don't expect it to change dramatically. The biggest change, of course, is COVID-19, um, and that will undoubtedly affect the revenue that the island produces. But you know, the, the core functionality of its economy is going to remain unchanged. It will continue to be a gambling center. Uh, we more or less expect Macau to be just Las Vegas with face masks. Yeah, exactly. Um, so from there, you know, we touched on it a little bit during the main segment, but it is not Happy Days outlook for Hong Kong, unfortunately. Uh, we're recording this in July 2020, and very recently, the Beijing central government passed a sweeping national security, quote-unquote, legislation that directly affects Hong Kong and allows extradition from Hong Kong to the mainland. Right, and what's significant about this, I mean, I, I'm sure most listeners can imagine that you don't want to go through the mainland uh, 
communist party's judicial system if you are considered a dissident they do have something to, something to the tune of a 99% conviction rate particularly for dissidents so if they snatch you up out of hong kong you are as good as jailed um, and this is something that they've been pushing for for a while they tried to get it done organically somewhat through the hong kong courts in 2019 and that extradition bill is what is what sparked off all these massive protests that you saw so much in the news beforehand. Um, and to give you an idea of how massive they were, you know, the total population of Hong Kong is something between seven and a half to eight million people. And these protests drew between 2.5 and 3 million people. Yeah, we haven't ever observed protests on this scale in terms of per percentage of the population. It's just really astounding. And, you know, with the passage of this most recent national security bill, it seems that that pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong is basically dead on arrival. Uh, Joshua Wong, the main agitator for the cause, has fled the territory and disbanded his opposition political party. So, you know, the people who are living there think that it's no longer safe to advocate for democracy for their territory. So that should give you a clue about how bad things are. Yeah, and several Western territories, uh, most notably the United Kingdom, have opened up uh, quick visas for several millions of people who were born in Hong Kong, particularly before the handoff legally. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, notably not the United States at this point in time, unfortunately, although we have uh, revoked Hong Kong's special economic status and now consider it to be part of the mainland with regards to trade and visa and all that sort of stuff. And on that happy note, let's kick it over to Taiwan, which is also seeing some heightened tensions. Um, As we mentioned during the Taiwanese segment, the pro-independence movement is really picking up steam. The younger generation sees themselves as Taiwanese as opposed to strictly Chinese. Taiwan for a long time, or the or the Republic of China, which is the government in Taiwan, they continued to claim the mantle to being the legitimate government of all China. Um, increasingly, they are distancing themselves away from that claim and feeling content to just be Taiwan. Um, recently, the Kuomintang was beaten in several elections, as I also alluded to earlier. This goes hand in hand with heightened political and military tensions between mainland China and Taiwan. Yeah, as I understand it, the mainland is about to execute one of its largest uh, military games practice ever, right? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. The PLA actually has, well, at least had plans for this August. We'll see if it continues amid the coronavirus. Uh, They had plans to stage a massive military exercise, which is simulating, you guessed it, amphibious landings in the South China Sea on the island of Hainan, principally. This, of course, has no relation or concern for the island of Taiwan, right? Not a wink-wink, nudge-nudge whatsoever. Uh, I believe one of the members of the top brass in China was quoted as saying, the great thing about these exercises is that they can rapidly be transitioned into military action. Uh, So... (laughs) A thinly veiled threat there, uh, and a lot of Western military experts do sort of expect that you know that would be a way for China to avoid procking uh, a bunch of defensive military buildup on the part of Taiwan and possibly even the United States. Now, it is sort of up in the air as to whether or not the United States would actually come to Taiwan's aid militarily. China, of course, is a nuclear power. 
But that's not the only area that the mainland is meddling about. They are quite literally building islands in the South China Sea. The the territorial claims of mainland China in the South China Sea are really just astounding. You should Google, it's called the Nine Dash Line to see the extent of these territorial claims. And it is literally just a giant, hairy scrotum of a territorial claim into the South China Sea. It's like... <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> I would have gone with schlong, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you put it so artfully. Uh, right. If you, if you look at this on a map, let me just briefly describe it to you. The, the territorial claim dips down from uh, South China and practically touches the shores of Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines. It just you know cuts all these maritime territories out of their claimed fishing areas, their their islands. Yeah, and not only is this uh, militarily important, but also a huge percentage of the world's uh, shipping traffic travels through the sea. So if China were able to lay, lay claim and you know start uh, directing ship traffic, could have glo- global economic implications as well. Right. You know, not not too far away from the South China Sea is the Straits of Malacca, and that is where approximately thirty percent of all global maritime trade passes through, and you know all, a tremendous amount of that does originate right in the South China Sea. Um, um, so that is what's happening to their south. Uh, to their west, they are engaging in what's known as the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a massive economic project that we're not going to dive too deep into just yet. Uh, but suffice to say, it is. It's basically a long string of roads, bridges, ports, you know, just massive infrastructure investment in countries all through Asia, into Africa. Uh, it extends all the way up into Europe. It's meant to sort of expand uh, China's political and economic influence and you know, get the rest of the world to sort of rotate inwards towards China and away from the United States economically. Yeah, and last big thing on the agenda for mainland is COVID nineteen and its impacts. Obviously, if you're li- you guessed it, yeah, exactly. You know, if you're listening to this inside <laughs> right now, you have the uh, Chinese government to thank for that. You know, if not for the creation of the virus, then at least for their initial poor handling of it. But that is a whole other can of worms that we will get into later, uh, for sure. However, for today, once again, want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the very first episode of the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Sam, and I'm Michael. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.